Our sermon today will be taken from 1 Peter 2nd, 1-12. This is the word of God. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are, you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Thus says the Lord. Thanks, Jess. Thank you for that. Um, you didn't tell us we had Martha Buck. Gosh. All right. It's not good. Um, guys, welcome again to CCC. Today we're going to be taking a break from our normal uh, series in Galatians. Okay, so throughout the year we go through two. We're going to go through three, through two sermon series. One is a series on the book of Galatians, which is we're just going to go through the whole book from chapter one to chapter six and look at the book in the context that God has originally intended it uh, through Peter. Um, and the second um, uh, sermon series we're doing is called the Doctrine for the Heart. The Doctrine for the Heart. Doctrine just means truth. So we're going to look at different passages, different doctrines in Scripture, and, and hopefully we'll see how those truths in Scripture is not just for the pastor, it's not just for the theologian or, or academia, it's for every Christian and how God is intended it that way. So today we're going to do the Doctrine for the Heart series, and we're going to talk about one doctrine that is very important for the Christian, and that's the doctrine of the Christian called by God as exiles. What does that mean to be an exile, and how does that apply to us today? Well, the Bible describes Christians in many ways, but one of those ways, as we have seen in this passage, is as exiles and sojourners. Sojourners, exiles, it just means that we are people who are not yet home. We are people in this earth as somewhat wanderers, travelers not yet experiencing the peace and the rest that we would when we're home. And I know some of us can relate to that, right? That whenever we feel tired and weary of the brokenness of this world, either based, done, caused by our own sin or caused by somebody else's sin to us, whenever we feel beaten down, whenever we experience people giving us a hard time for the faith we have in Christ, whenever the realities of this broken world is hurting us, you're experiencing traveling pains. 
You're experiencing the pains as sojourners, as exiles. Now, the Christians in Peter's day, taken from 1 Peter chapter 2, right? This is a letter that Peter wrote to Christians um, in a place where now we call modern-day Turkey. It was broken to a bunch of places back in the day. Peter wrote the letter to them, and we can tell that they were hurting. Not only from the everyday mess and brokenness that comes with living in a broken world, but they're broken and tired because they're also being persecuted for their faith. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. It says, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Okay, the Christians there were being insulted for the name of Christ. Chapter 5, verse 9 from, from the book of First Peter. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So they're suffering, they're experiencing some kind of pushback, and they're tired of living in a broken world. Now, based on the content and on the date of when the book of First Peter was written, the type of persecution they're experiencing wasn't some kind of crazy big mass persecution where all the Christians were being kind of, you know, outlawed or, 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 or you know, warred against. No. The kind of persecution they're experiencing is the same kind of persecution that Christians today who live in modern urban cities experience as well. It's not this big mass outlaw of the Christian faith, but it's more kind of locally um, experienced kind of persecutions. They would experience verbal abuse for their faith. They'd be ridiculed by it. Or sometimes they'd be treated um, with willful ignorance. Is if something unjust was done to them, it'd just kind of be ignored and not dealt with properly. And to these Christians who are tired and weighed down by the brokenness of this world, Peter writes to them this letter and tells them, remember, you are exiles. You are not home. And I know there are people here who are experiencing the same kind of symptoms that those Christians were experiencing. I know that there are people here um, who are tired of the brokenness of their own sin and of other people's sin to them. I know people here who actually are being persecuted for their faith by their families, um, by their friends' families. I know people who, are actually, who actually have their jobs at risk right now um, because of the same reasons. Now, um, as we go um, to God in this passage, I want us to think... And, and listen to what Peter describing us as exiles for, because it's going to minister to our hearts in two ways. One, the doctrine of Christians as exiles is going to minister and heal those who are hurting. But the second way, it's going to challenge those who are comfortable. The doctrine of being an exile is going to heal those who are hurting, and it's going to challenge those who are comfortable. Okay, So we have three points um, today. The first point is exiles have a unique identity. Second point, exiles have a unique authority. And third point, exiles have a unique savior. Exiles have a unique identity. Exiles have a unique authority. And exiles have a unique savior. Let's go to the first point. But let's go to prayer first before we go to God. Father God, um, be with us this morning. And help us um, ponder upon your word as you have revealed to us. And Lord, let us meet you. That there is a God of the universe who has revealed himself through the scriptures. Let us study you and meet with you in this word um, as those who long 
um, uh, for your righteousness. As, as poor people in spiritual poverty who has been given ultimate, infinite riches in Christ on the cross. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First point. Exiles, we, all Christians here, exiles, have a unique identity. Throughout the scripture, God describes Christians as many things, and I'll just skip that whole part. I was going to do this whole part, but I think that'll take too long. But God describes us in many ways and through many images. And in this text today, Peter describes these beat-down, tired Christians who are tired of living in a broken world in various ways. Look at verses 4 to 5, verse 9, and verse 12 to me. It's not on the screen, it's on your um, handouts. Verse 4 to 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A few images here. Living stones, spiritual house, holy priesthood. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. More images. And then verse 11, we get even more. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. There's five images total in this passage. Living stones, spiritual house, a holy or royal priesthood, a holy nation, and sojourners or exiles. Okay, there's those five. Let's break these five, stay with, stick with me, let's break these five into three different categories. The first, living stones and spiritual house. Let's make that the temple category. Second, the holy and royal priesthood. Let's make that the priest category or priestly category. Third, the images of being a holy nation, sojourners and exiles. Let's call this the exile imagery category okay so god describes these beat down tired christians who are who are weary of traveling in this broken world like probably many of us are here today like i am oftentimes today and tells us you're a temple you're a priest and you are exiles now let's talk about them but as we discuss these images and how god describes us as these things don't just think about the theological connections and theological implications that these things have but think about the emotional effect it would have to those Christians who were being persecuted. Those who are tired of the sins of this world. I know people here who have their Bibles thrown away by their parents because they don't believe uh, in the gospel. I know people here who are being threatened um, um, in many ways. And, and, um, and, and, and for you that are tired and broken of this world, not caused by persecution, maybe just caused by the everyday tiredness of being in this world, imagine the emotional aspect of how this would affect you. Okay, let's do the first one. The temple imagery, verses 4 to 5. What did Peter mean when he called us, he called them, and God calls us, living stones and a spiritual house? Well, back in the Old Testament, God commanded his people to build a temple, right? You probably know this or have heard about this, but there's a temple of God in the Old Testament in Israel. And this temple is a spiritual house, you see in verse 5. A place where God's presence and glory would reside in. To build this temple, only the best and most valuable and most expensive stones are used. This is the place of God. You don't use cheap stones for that. You use precious stones. Now, 
Look at verse Saint uh, Chronicles chapter three verses one to six. This is uh, one of the examples of where we see this um, in in the Bible. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. The nave he lined with cypress and covered it with fine gold and made palms and chains on it. He adorned the house with settings of precious stones. There are precious stones being used to build up a temple. God describes you as living stones. Now imagine the kind of lives these Christians were experiencing. They were shamed. They're humiliated. They're beat down. They've been dishonored, both because of their own sin and by the sin of the world that's been done to them. And on top of that, the persecution they're experiencing for their faith. Yet Peter calls them precious stones. You're valuable. You're exquisite. You are rare. You are beautiful. Do you see how this can be encouraging to Christians who are in that state of life? But that's not the main encouragement from this imagery. Remember what these stones are being used for? They're being used to build a temple, a spiritual house. The temple is where in the Old Testament God's glory, God's presence was in. The Christians were not only described as precious and valuable. No, he says, you are a spiritual house. You are God's temple. This is a little bit unreal. It's, it's, it's bizarre. Think about it. It's kind of hard to accept. What is Peter saying? If God lives in the temple and Peter calls you a temple of God, what is he saying? That God lives in you. Listen, oh, tired, beat down, humiliated, guilty, shamed Christians who are in Christ. You are a temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says this as well. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? This is what Peter was telling them. And this is what God, through Peter, is telling us who are in Christ now. Sure, their words hurt. And it's okay to feel hurt. But it does not change the reality of how valuable you are to me. Sure, what just happened was painful, and it's okay to feel that pain and be sad about it. But it does not change the reality of how much you're worth to me. Sure, you messed up big time. Sure, you fell into sin, and you should be broken about it. But remember that I have purchased you on the cross, and that you are mine, and that you will forever be precious to me. That's what Peter's saying. Second imagery, we're priests. We're a holy and royal priesthood, verse 5. Now connect this to the temple imagery. Priests, back in the Old Testament, have two main functions uh, in the temple. They have, might have more, but at least I know they have these two. One is that they offer animal sacrifices on behalf of the people, of the sins of the people of Israel. They, they, they would kill bulls and goats and lambs to kind of atone for the sins, Right? pointing to Christ, obviously, who ultimately died for our sins. Second role is that they're a mediator between man and God. They're they're the in-between, so to speak. Christians, Peter calls, are also priests. We have priestly functions. Now, we don't offer sacrifices to God. There's no more animal sacrifices to be done. That's been completed on the cross by Jesus, who was called the Lamb of God. Right? That's done. That's complete. We don't need to do that anymore. But we still do sacrifice something to God. We are called to sacrifice something to God. Look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, 
by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What are we called to sacrifice? Our lives, ourselves. Not in a self-mutilation kind of way. We're not called to hurt ourselves, but we, we offer ourselves to God. We sacrifice our lives to God by persevering in this broken world, by persevering in this world that is not home, in which we experience traveling pains every single day, in which maybe sometimes we receive pushback for the gospel of Christ, now persevere and do so in a way that's faithful to God. Sacrifice our lives to Him. Not to earn our salvation, but because there has been an ultimate sacrifice that has done that for us. And guess what happens when we do this? Guess what happens when Christians live a life in such a way that perseveres through a broken world, live a life in such a way that loves those who persecute them. We play the second function of a priest, which is a mediator between man and God. Now, we don't mediate in the same way that Christ does, of course. Christ is the only one that can be the ultimate mediator between God and man. We can't pay for sins. He is our high priest. But in a sense, when those who do not yet know Christ see how we're giving our lives in humble faithfulness to the Lord not to earn salvation, not because of pride, but because we have been given a new life in Christ, guess what it does? They see the love of God. They see the gospel. They see his mercies. And hopefully that would lead them to glorify God. Look at verse 9. When, Christians, when, when people who don't know Christ see our lives in the gospel, it will proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, it proclaims the gospel. Verse 12, when, when, when people who don't know Christ see our lives as, as living sacrifices, faithful to the Lord, and uh, see us keeping our conduct among the Gentiles honorable, what's going to happen? When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. As we offer ourselves in the first function of priests as a living sacrifice to God, not to earn salvation, but because we have been saved, they will see that and it will preach to them the gospel of mercy and grace. That there is a love that is not of this world. That this person seems to not find this place as home and has a higher hope later in the future. Peter is saying, persevere. Love those who persecute you. It's easy to love those who love you, but it's hard to love those who hate you. Now that's the gospel, isn't it? Persevere. Now, this doesn't mean we let people abuse us. Be careful, that's not what I'm saying. See, abuse comes from a low view of self. Abuse comes from a low self-esteem. You let people walk all over you because you have devalued yourself. Peter's not saying let people abuse you. Peter's saying be patient, not abuse, patience. See, if abuse comes from low self-esteem, patience comes from a humble confidence that how God sees me is my ultimate authority of how valuable I am. I'm precious as a precious stone. I am beautiful. I am... I am unique in Him. Um, how God sees me is my ultimate value. And I don't enjoy people abusing me. I don't enjoy people treating me wrongly. But because I have this sure and certain value in Christ, I don't have the need to defend myself and fight back and be spiteful back just to convince the world that I'm honorable, to convince the world that I have value. You have value. You don't need to prove that. The only person... Who, whose opinion really ultimately matters 
has found you ultimately valuable and worthy and precious to the point where he would die for you on a cross. That's why verse 1 says, don't be malicious, don't be slanderous back to them, because you know your worth in Christ. Don't take abuse, but be patient and long-suffering as we are faithful to him. Okay, so we've talked about how the image of a temple and of living stones affects us. We've talked about how the image of being priests affects us. Now the third image, the third category. These images, all of these things that we just talked about, is summarized in this last category. As a holy nation, as sojourners, as exiles. You see in verses 9 to 11. Peter concludes and reminds them that your citizenship, that their citizenship, is not on earth. Paul says the same thing, Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are in Christ, those whose salvation is secured, are citizens of heaven. You are set apart. You are sojourners. You are exiles. You are currently in travel. Now, how we are to carry ourselves in this journey is as priests who give our lives as sacrificial offerings to God. How we are to carry our our conduct in this journey is as a holy place of where God resides in our bodies, as valuable. The way we're supposed to conduct ourselves in this journey as those who represent the gospel of grace to wherever God has placed you, both through word and through deed, with humble confidence, not because of low self-esteem, but because you are precious stones, because you are being built up into a temple where God himself resides. You see, these images should affect every part of our being and our lives. Okay, let's move to our second point. We've seen how the Christian's identity and responsibility as exiles, as priests, as living stones, as um, a temple of God, um, we've seen how we're supposed to do that and, 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 and what exactly we're supposed to do while we're on earth. But the question is, how can we continually believe our worth and our identity as God has showed us in the Bible? Are there not so many competing voices out there that tell us how valuable we are or how unvaluable we are? Are there not competing voices out there that tell you who you are instead of who God tells you you are? There is. And because of that, we, point two, as exiles, have a unique authority. Look at verse two. This is how we can grow in our identity and belief as, a, as priests, as a holy temple of God, and by doing so, minister the gospel of grace. Verse two, this is how you grow in that. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Okay, let's, let's get into that. Long for pure spiritual milk. This is easier understood as the pure milk of the word. Now, the ESV is a good English translation of the Bible, and I, I stick to it. It's great. But, but, I, but I think this, this verse is easier translated as um, pure milk of the word, of the, of the scripture, because it has the word logikos in it. Logikos means scripture. It means Bible. Okay? Now, your authority, as we long for logikos, as we long for scripture, for God's word, this is where the Christian gets the fuel and the strength and the reminder of how to live with such humble and joyful faithfulness on earth, as priests, as temples of God. Now, people misunderstand what the Bible is. See, they think it's just mainly an instruction manual, where God kind of gives us things to do, and how to fix our own lives, and how to be better people 
I mean, yes, the, the, there are factors of that in, in it. There are instruction manuals in the Bible, but it's not the main or primary substance, substance I would say, of what Scripture is. What is the primary substance of Scripture? Look at, verses, uh, look at verse 4. But, but think about the continuation of verses 2 to 4. Okay, I'll, let me remind us. Verse 2, Peter says, Grow in the Lord through Scripture. Now verse 4, what happens when a Christian spends time studying Scripture? What happens? Verse 4, as you come to Him. See, spending time in Scripture is not only an instruction manual, it is a way to meet a person. You see what I'm saying? When you read Scripture, when you long for the spiritual milk of the Word, you are coming to Him. You are not just learning from Him. You're not just studying academia about him you are meeting him you are coming to him as you come to him as you memorize meditate journal sing pray you're meeting with jesus and when you do this you will grow in your faith and will be built up in our unique identities as priests and as temples of god on earth okay now don't get me wrong it doesn't mean that we can't learn about God elsewhere. We can. There are many passages in the Bible that says we can learn about God through nature. That he's a creator. That he is creative. Right? We can learn God from God or about God from art and music and beauty. He is, after all, the source and ultimate place of where this beauty comes from. But it's very, very, very limited. The primary way we are to meet with Jesus, we are to grow up in our identities as priests, as, as valuable precious stones, as a temple of God. The way we do that is when we have communion with God, strengthened uniquely through the Bible. That's where you primarily meet with God. Look, if you pick me up at the airport, okay, and I tell you that I'm flying Garuda, and I'll land at 8.30 p.m. at Terminal 2, I think that's where Garuda lands. I don't know. Okay? That's where you'll meet me. And then you, on the way there, decide, you know what? I'm going to go to Lion Air, which I don't know if you should, you should fly Lion Air, but I'm going to go to Lion Air, and I'm going to meet you there at 10 a.m. at Terminal 1. And you don't find me. And then I come to you later, and I say, why did you go there? I told you I'd be here. And you said, well, you know, there could have been a possibility of a change of flight, right? That, that happens all the time. Your flight, your schedule could have been changed, and I thought that you could have been here, so I went ahead and looked for you here. Sure, my flight could have been changed. Sure, Garuda all would have been canceled, and I was forced to fly Lion Air and ended up at Terminal 1 at 10 a.m. But that is not where I told you I'd be, you see. Yes, you can find God in nature. Yes, you can find God in beauty and art and music. Yes, but he told us, Meet with me, I will be here in my word. Study me, seek me, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. Now, as you meet with God, as we are built up in our identities as priests and as holy temples in God, we will grow up in the salvation we have. We will grow up in our relationship with him, in our identities. And when we do that, our lives will more and more and more and more portray and preach the gospel of grace and mercy. 
the gospel of Christ, right? Because as we study the word, memorize the word, pray about the word, we will become increasingly as the priests that we are, as the holy temples that we are. And as we do so, we will increasingly preach the gospel both by our lives and by our words. And when we do that, it can be offensive to people. Look at verses 6 to 8. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And, notice, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Notice, from verses 6 to 8, there is one cornerstone, there is one Christ, there is one gospel, but there's two different reactions. One group put their faith in this cornerstone and believed, and they were not put to shame. The other group rejected this cornerstone, and to them it became a rock of offense. See, when we truly immerse ourselves in the Word, when we truly grow in our love and our understanding and belief of who we are in Christ, we will live out that identity in the world. We will preach the gospel both through life and deed, and this is what's going to happen. Some people will be drawn to you, or drawn to Christ, rather, but some will reject you, or reject Christ. Verse 6, some will believe. Verse 8, some will be offended. Now, why is it that when we live our identities as priests and, 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 and temple, when we live out our identities as those who preach the gospel here, in where, wherever we are, why is that offensive? Because it offends two people. It offends both the religious and it offends the non-religious. Here's what I mean. The gospel offends religious, quote-unquote, people. Because religious people say that I can earn my salvation based upon how righteous I am. Religious people say I can become closer with God based upon the merit of my own strength, of my own obedience, of my own righteousness. Religious people say, I'm not sinful, I'm not weak, I have what it takes. What does the gospel say? You're poor. You're weak. You don't have what it takes. We cannot do it on our own. We cannot earn God's approval by our own obedience. And our spirituality does not make us better than anyone else. To admit our sin, to say that we're weak, it can be very offensive to people. You want to know an almost sure way to make your church unpopular in the city? Do a confession of sin during your worship service. That'll do it. Right? It's an unpopular doctrine. Nobody wants to hear that. But we are called to say the gospel preaches. We cannot do it on our own. We are in desperate need of a savior. And that can simply be offensive. But also, the gospel can be offensive to non-religious people. As Christians, because we have been saved by faith through grace, because we are God's temple and we are priests, we are to live faithfully pleasing to God. Verse 1, look at it. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Verse 5, offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Verse 11, abstain from passions of the flesh. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. This means that at some point, if we're truly living out our identity as priests, if we're truly living out our identities as holy temples, there might come a time when we say, I'm sorry, I cannot take that kind of business deal. There might become 
a time and place where we say, I'm sorry, I won't do that before marriage. There might be a time and place where we say, I'm sorry, my conscience won't allow me to go to those kind of places. And when we do that, it's offensive to the non-religious. See, the gospel is offensive to the religious and the non-religious. And when we live it out, some might be drawn to Christ, but some might be offended. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 to 16. He says the same thing. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. One will smell our lives and say, that stinks. And others will smell our lives and say, that is a fragrant aroma, this gospel, this Jesus I want. See, as mentioned in the introduction earlier, this doctrine of Christians living out as exiles, as priests, as temples, it should comfort those who are hurting, yes. As we've seen in point one, it does comfort those who are hurting. But it should challenge those who are comfortable. Some Christians, including myself, as first and foremost sinner in this, I I struggle with this every day. We often live life on earth as if it's home, don't we? We live life on earth a little too comfortable for somebody who's merely passing through, a little bit too comfortable for a traveler, an exile who's on their way back home. It's not just Peter that says it in this book. It's not just Paul that said it in 2 Corinthians earlier. Jesus himself said it. Look at John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you're of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We shouldn't be confused when we experience pushback from people who are offended by the gospel. We should be confused when we have never experienced any pushback at all. That's when we should be confused. Now, okay, I'm not saying that you should go out there and look for trouble. That, that's not what I'm saying. There's this guy I remember while I was in college. I was on staff in the college ministry. And college ministries are big with, like, you know, evangelism in the streets, and they go out and share the gospel. And this guy, he was, like, a big uh, football player um, for University of Memphis. He just came to Christ, so he was really excited about being Christian. And he, like, he went out that night, and he, and he came back to the hotel, and he, and he told me, he's like, Tazar, man, um, um, I was persecuted for the faith tonight. I went out there, and I... I stopped people in the street and I preached the gospel to them and I said it so loudly that I made sure everyone else around me heard it and then I went to another guy and I, and I preached the gospel to him and, and I was rejected 36 times. One guy almost punched me. I was persecuted for the gospel. I'm like, dude, you were not persecuted for the gospel. You're persecuted because you're being rude and annoying. <laughs> that's not persecuted for the gospel. That's just, that's just being annoying. Peter isn't saying be persecuted because you're annoying. He said what's being persecuted is the gospel message. The cornerstone is who they reject. So go out there, be sensitive, be kind in how you live out your calling as priests, as holy temples. Preach the gospel in a wise, strategic, kind, sensitive way. But at some point, it will be offensive to people. 
and we can't help that. Um, but we do have to check our motives and heart. Have we done this well in a loving way? Okay. This is hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to live this life in view that this world is not our ultimate home. It's hard to find our worth in what God says and not in what this world tells us we are. And there's a huge desire and temptation to water down the gospel in our lives. There's a huge desire and temptation to, to kind of um, um, say, you know what, you're not that bad. Or you don't have to live this righteously. You know, there's a temptation for that. And the desire to be, I don't know what the word is, but apologetic to the faith we have in Christ. And God says, no, no, push forward, keep going. Love others who persecute you. Preach the gospel through your word in life. But the question is, where can we find the strength to do so? How can you and I today here really believe, and I mean really believe, as our identities as exiles? How can this happen? Go to our last point. Exiles have a unique savior. The reason why we can have strength, the reason why we can persevere the hardships of a broken world and persevere the hardships of an exilic life, or just go through options in general, is because we are exiles. This is what I mean. We can persevere the hardships of being an exile because we have the joys of an exile. We can persevere the hard times of exilic life because we will have the joys of an exile. Okay, we talked about the hardships of an exile, but what are the joys? Well, we we mentioned it. We're living stones. We can be called as valuable and precious by God. So therefore, we can persevere and give people that give us a hard time love and care. We're called the temple of God. God lives in us. We, we have an eternal home who, that we will go to one day where God, who died for us, is waiting for us there. Those joys belong to you. But here's a question I want to ask. Why do you think you deserve the joys of an exile? Why should you be called a temple of God? What have you done? What have I done? What have we done in our lives to be called precious and beautiful and valuable and exquisite? Why do we have the, the, the honor of being priests on earth representing a holy God? Where did that come from? I'm sure throughout the sermon, some of you even felt a bit icky. Some of us felt, I don't know, don't, don't call me precious. Don't call me the temple of God. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how sinful and dirty I really am. I don't deserve to have all that. I don't deserve those joys. I deserve to be rejected, not lavished by God. Well, true, I don't know that. But God knows all of that. And yet he can still call you precious. Yet he can still call you beautiful. Yet he can still call you a temple where he lives. Why is that? Because, verse 10, he has given you mercy. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The only reason why you can experience the joys of exilic life is because you have been given mercy. Where is this mercy found? It's in a place where someone was already rejected for you. Look at verse 4. There's a living stone. This cornerstone that you represent so much, this cornerstone that you live out so much, 
he was rejected by men. The precious Christ, the precious Son of God, was rejected by men to a point of death so that we can be made beautiful, so that we can be made precious in his sight. Verse 4, verse four the living stone chosen and precious, and now we are a cornerstone, living stones chosen and precious. Now, why was he willing to be rejected? Because he wants you for himself. Okay? But usually I end the gospel point here, but I studied this passage again, and I think we need to continue the gospel point further. Notice one more thing before we end. Remember in verses 6 to 8, there were two different reactions to how people responded to the gospel. One believed and is given honor. The other rejected, right? So, yes, Christ died for our sins, but why did we believe? Why, why did we, if we're in Christ, believe in him? And why do other peoples don't? Is it because we have just that much more common sense than other people? Is it because we just have that much more spiritual sensitivity compared to other people? No. Why do some receive? Why do some reject? Look at verse 7 to 8. The stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and a stumbling, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They reject the chosen and precious Christ because they were destined to do. If they reject because they're destined to do, why do you think we received? Because we were destined to. Just as God has chosen in verse 4 this instrument, chosen this cornerstone to be rejected by man, so has he chosen and destined for us to believe in him. If you're in Christ today. Look at verse 9 again. But you are, what? A chosen race. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. The reason why we believe Jesus and we don't believe Jesus is not because we're better than other people. It's not because we somehow have more common sense than other people. It's not because we're more spiritual than other people. But it's because God, throughout eternity, has wanted you for himself. We have been destined to. Romans 9, 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue... Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Ephesians 1.4 Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. One last thought. I promise we'll end. If this is true, if he's always wanted you to become his possession before the foundations of the world, that means Jesus Christ did not die for you to make you precious. Jesus did not die for you to make you precious. He died for you because even before the foundations of the earth, you have always been precious to him. He died for you not to make you valuable, not to make you beautiful. He died for you because even before the foundations of the earth, you have always been beautiful to him. Notice the finality of Peter's language in this passage. We will not be put to shame. There's no ifs or questions. The honor is for you. There's no ifs or questions. You are chosen. P- 
people who are already God's possessions, who have been brought out from darkness into marvelous light. There's no ifs or questions. You have already received mercy. There's no ifs or questions. There's a finality. It is not up to chance. There's no doubt in Peter's mind that those who have been destined to be with God before the foundations of the earth will, we, will be with God for eternity. And this finality was fulfilled on the cross when Jesus said, it is finished. Listen to Jesus' word. Listen to the words of this cornerstone, John 10, 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Let's connect this with the previous one. We are Christ. We have been destined to be Christ, to be his own possession, to be a priesthood, to be a holy nation, to be, to be living stones. And because of that, we will always be with Christ. This means the proof that God will never stop loving you, even after the earth as we know it is gone, is because he has always loved you even before the foundations were built. This means there will never be a point in time when God stops lavishing you with love. Because there was never a point in time when he began to. You see, he's an eternal God. He's loved you before the foundations of the earth. And to make you his own, he paid for you himself on the cross. What is this next 70, 90 years for you? What is it to us in comparison to this eternal love we've been lavished with? Is this home? Is this it? Peter says, no. We are merely exiles here. We are sojourners. We are travelers. And one day, we'll be reunited with this eternal God who's loved us with an everlasting love and who's paid for our sins and purchased us for himself on the cross. We will get there. But these next few years, while we're on earth, while we're traveling, live in the light of this eternal life and this eternal love. Live as priests. Live as valuable, precious living stones. Worship him with faithfulness. Let's pray. Father God, this truth often is too much to even believe, and sometimes it sounds like we're making it up. But Lord, convince us through the scripture that this is how you have revealed your love to us. That you have loved us with an everlasting love. And now we are called here to live the rest of our lives to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. To persevere through the brokenness of this world. To persevere through hardships. To persevere through the pushback that the gospel might have as we live it out and to persevere and especially love those who do give us a hard time for this hope we have in Christ. Father, guide us and continue to convince us of your love for us, and I hope as we've studied the pure spiritual milk of the word today, we are further convinced as our identity as precious stones, as temples where God lives in, and as royal priests, and as exiles. And Lord, as we continue to study your word and see your love in it, and grow in our assurance of this identity and value, help us preach the gospel of grace through our lives and through our words even more increasingly um, throughout our week. Thank you for who you are. And now again, let us sing this song and approach you, the throne of grace, with confidence, not because of who we are,
but because of what you have done for us and your everlasting love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.